Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for joining me today as we look into some of the key issues that we're facing in these last days. Our Heavenly Father wants us to understand our times and live in such a way as to reflect His glory and power in our lives. Today we're going to go back in history and consider what happened during a powerful and successful religious movement. We will commemorate the powerful Reformation of the 16th century that was led by Martin Luther, the monk of Wittenberg, that became the archenemy of Rome. He would, as some people like to say, turn over in his grave if he saw the effect of the ecumenical movement on his own church. In recent years, those who want to suggest that Luther's Reformation was really just a schism and that there was no real substance to the reforms he made have consistently besmirched Luther's name as just a disruptor. Moreover, they tr try to say that there is now unity on justification and that his reform wasn't really necessary and that the Reformation is over. In recent years, Martin Luther and his great work has been maligned and misrepresented by both the Catholic Church and formerly Protestant churches, including the Lutheran Church itself. They do not take into account the fact that it was Luther's Bible translated into German from the Textus Receptus that held the church separate from Rome for 500 years. They think it doesn't matter so much what Bible we read. Friends, the Bible is at the center of the issue. Which Bible are you going to believe? The corrupted Western Bibles from Catholic sources? Or are you going to believe the Reformation Bibles that come from the Textus Receptus, which was compiled from the purer Eastern sources? The real question in our day hangs on your loyalty to Scripture just as it was in the days of Martin Luther. Before we begin, however, I just want to ask that you please invite at least one person to sign up for our monthly CDs. Give them the pink card in your packet or show them how to sign up online. We need to get the message much farther afield, and this is a great way for you to help. Also, don't forget to order our Prophetic Secrets of the New World Order DVD set. This will help you prioritize your thinking so that the prophetic things in the news come alive. Once you understand the principles involved, you will have new eyes of discernment that will help you understand the news in its true meaning, its prophetic meaning. I also want to tell you about Last Generation magazine. In this heightened age of ecumenical fervor, many people wonder if the Reformers made much ado about nothing. Was the Protestant Reformation a mistake? Or perhaps it was just a bad misunderstanding. Last Generation magazine explores these timely questions in its commemorative issue of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Power-packed topics include ecumenical arrogance, what the early church fathers said about Antichrist, identifying the beast of Revelation, who gave us our Bible, what the Reformers believed and taught about Antichrist, and other important issues surrounding a correct biblical and historical understanding of the issues of Protestantism. Written especially for those who do not understand our end-time message, this magazine is a wonderful tool to share. Last Generation Ministries has good prices on quantities. Call them at 540-672-5671. That's 540-672-5671. And most importantly, I want to draw your attention to your insert in your packet this month. It is our annual appeal to our supporters to assist us in our God-given work. 
We only make one appeal a year, and this year we really need your support. We must get our wellness retreat in South Australia renovated and ready for guests. We already have $50,000 toward our goal of $150,000. Your extra gift will help us prepare to win souls and change people's lives forever. God has instructed us to do this work. Therefore, we know He will sustain it. And thank you for your generous support. God bless you. Let us begin with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have given us the Bible. Its sacred pages are full of counsel and guidance for us in these last days. Please send your Holy Spirit to us today as we open the scriptures and understand our times. As we look at the amazing principles of the Lutheran Reformation, please help us place our affections on heavenly things and remember that we are called to be their successors. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let us begin our study today by reading Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. That's Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time, and times, and half a time, from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth, and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The church has always been under the careful eye of the Godhead. It is the object of their supreme regard. All three of them, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, are involved in supporting the church. They have always nurtured and protected the church, even though the enemy hurls its persecutions and abuse at her. And now that church has only a remnant of faithful souls left. It is those who follow the Bible, keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. See Revelation 19.10. You cannot have the testimony of Jesus if you aren't following the Bible, for the Bible testifies of Jesus. After a thousand years of darkness and ignorance throughout Roman Catholic Europe, the time had come for light to be shed upon the people and to break the power of Rome. Many of those who are members of once Protestant churches have forgotten their heritage and the importance of the principles of Bible interpretation that brought them into existence in the first place. They have also forgotten why their forefathers shed their blood. They have forgotten the suppression of the scriptures the Catholic Church brought to society. Rome still places tradition above the scripture and urges men to seek indulgences and in the worship of Mary and blasphemous mass, etc., they have turned a blind eye to Rome's modern popular style, and they have chosen the easy popular side. So let us first consider the key principles that led to Martin Luther's Reformation and how it affected the circumstances of Europe. We will also look at the role the Bible played in society and its effect on the minds of the common people. And lastly, we'll look at its impact on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Underlying the Reformation was the authority of the Bible. 
The Bible, or the Word of God, has been at the center of every conflict between truth and error since the very beginning. When Adam and Eve first sinned, the real issue was whether or not they were going to believe the Word of God. During the time of the patriarchs, the Word of God was the driving force in their relations both domestic and in the communities in which they lived. In the time of Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness, the central issue was the authority of the Word of God. Were they going to trust in that Word, or were they going to grumble and complain against God? The same is true during the time of Samuel and Saul. When Saul brought back all the spoils of the Amalekites, Samuel said, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams, 1 Samuel 15.22. During New Testament times, the Word of God was still at the center of the conflicts. Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, said Peter and John. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard, Acts 4.19 and 20. Paul's experience reveals the centrality of the Word of God, too. He wrote to Timothy and said, From a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 2 Timothy 3, verses 15-17. through 17. All the apostles and prophets place the word at the center of the struggle for truth. Martyrs were martyrs because of their love and loyalty to the word, and they refused to replace it with the authority of man. And so it goes. Down through the ages, God's word has always been the guide of those who love God, for it sustains, supports, and strengthens them. The holy scriptures have been the comfort of the righteous and the condemnation of the unjust. The Bible has been the enemy of those who do not love God supremely, even though they may profess it. At every turn, whether the Old or New Testament history, or history since the Bible was written, the Bible has been at the center of the conflict between Christ and Satan, between truth and error, and between the powers of right and the powers of wrong. During the Middle Ages, the Word of God was suppressed by Rome. The church did everything she could to keep the Bible from the people, all the while proclaiming her loyalty to the Bible. She chained it in monasteries and sequestered it in the naves of churches, so that only the most learned doctors of the church, the most loyal to the popes, would have access to it. Rome threatened anyone that opposed her power and authority, especially if it was because of the Bible. The Waldenses suffered greatly. They were brutally persecuted during the darkest ages because they tried to bring light and truth to the people and undermine the false teachings of Rome. One of the tricks Rome used to keep the people in darkness was the way she used the Latin language. The Western Bibles were only translated into Latin from the Greek. These Bibles had been corrupted by the Gnostic school in Alexandria, Egypt, and suited Rome's intention to keep the people in darkness. So the Bible was only read in Latin. It was not to be published in the languages of the people for several reasons. First, the people could not understand it even if it was in their own language, Rome argued. They cannot read or write, mostly. Second, Rome taught that Latin was a holy language, and since the scriptures were holy, they had to be read in Latin. Keeping the Bible in Latin, however, was also a powerful strategic move. 
They could then keep the people ignorant of the scriptures and themselves unaccountable to the Bible or to the people. They could claim that they were the only ones who knew the scriptures and that the people just had to trust them with the interpretation. This led to great abuses and wickedness. The church descended into abomination after abomination. It reeked with wickedness, while sex and money scandals were rampant everywhere. The stench was so great that even well-respected churchmen, at times, were compelled to decry her vices and pine for a better day. While ever the Bible was suppressed and was not to be read by the common man, the truth of God was hidden, and only a few who were somewhat enlightened by the faithful Waldenses understood that the church was in error. Speaking of the Waldenses, their main purpose was to give light and truth to the people, to expose the errors of Rome through the word of God. Their aim was to turn the people to Christ, who is the word of God. They would carry with them little portions of the scripture, especially pointing out the way of salvation, as well as the errors of Rome, and would share them wherever and whenever they had opportunity with the benighted souls they encountered. And little by little, light was spread abroad, creating a deep longing for an understanding of the word in the hearts of the people. The church leaders treated the Waldenses as if they were extremists and subversives so that they would be feared. They persecuted them as if they were the cause of the evils of society. Many a faithful Waldensee was executed for his faith. Keeping the Bible in Latin also meant that the uncorrupted Bibles from the East would be kept out of the Western Empire. In fact, the church in the West had become exclusively Latin. Only the Waldenses kept the Bible in the common language known as the Itala language. But the Crusades, which preceded the Reformation, prepared the way for a new Bible to make itself prominent in the West to a considerable extent. The Crusade Wars between the Catholic West and the Muslim East brought massive changes to the West because of the refugees that came in from the East as a result of the disruptions and conflicts. And they brought their Bibles, which were sometimes written in the common languages of the East, though mostly in Greek, but which were also of a completely different variety than the Bibles of the West. The Gnostics of Alexandria had not corrupted the Eastern Bibles, these were the Bibles that had descended from Lucien's work in Edessa. These were the Bibles that would be the formation and the foundation of the Reformation. Eventually, even under the noses of the ignorant priests, these Bibles made their way into the universities and churches of the West. But let us digress for a moment. Why were the Eastern Bibles so important to the West and to the Reformation? God was planning a major change in the West. That change could not have happened without a pure Bible. The Walden Seas had shown the common people that they could not trust the priest to give them the truth, and that they could not trust the Latin Vulgate, and for good reason. It was not reliable to be the Word of God. God knew that the soon-coming Reformers would need Bibles the people could trust, Bibles that weren't connected to the Roman Catholic Vulgate, God knew they needed the pure and vastly more accurate translations of the East. God used the Islamic crusaders to create turmoil and upheaval and thereby open up the East, which would then allow the Eastern Bibles to migrate into the West. Once that was accomplished, the time for the great Protestant Reformation had come. In this way, God used the Muslims to help him prepare to shake the Roman Catholic Church to its core. 
As I said, these Bibles were sourced from the Lucian texts, which later became known as the Textus Receptus, once compiled. Now it was possible that the ones God would appoint to lead the Reformation could now compare the two texts, East and West. Now they could see the corruptions in the Western manuscripts more easily and clearly. The Reformers knew that they could not build a true reform on the Western texts. In 14th century England, John Wycliffe had brought great light into England through his Bible translation from the Latin Vulgate into the English. But that was 200 years prior to Martin Luther, and that was all he had, and a lot had happened in the interim years. The Reformers knew they could not use Wycliffe's great work because the Reformation needed to go way beyond Wycliffe and way beyond Catholicism. The Latin Vulgate could not be its foundation. In fact, the Reformation Bibles were to open the way for the truth to grow and progress until the end of time. The Reformers also knew that they could not get a pure church if they could not have a pure Bible. So you can see that for modern Protestants to return to Rome is an epic tragedy. As the time for the Reformation drew near, Erasmus, the great scholar of Rotterdam, was very concerned about the corruptions in the church. He knew the church needed reform, but he would not allow his sterling reputation as a scholar be tarnished with allegations of heresy. So he set about to do a scholarly work that could certainly burnish his reputation among his colleagues. He set about to change the church from the top down. Of course, he didn't tell many people exactly what he was doing, but he compiled a compilation of the Eastern manuscripts in the New Testament had it published, and handed it to the church leaders. It became known as the Textus Receptus, or the Received Text. His idea was that if they had a pure manuscript, the Pope and other church leaders, who could understand Greek, would then see for themselves that the church needed to be reformed and start the reform from the top down. The leaders saw no harm or threat in Erasmus' work and congratulated him on its completion. After all, it was in Greek a language that was unfamiliar to the common people. But tragically, the expected Reformation never happened, and you can understand why. There were too many vested interests, too much power, too much politics, and virtually no motivation to change. Everything was going the way of the priests and nobles who supported them anyway. So why bother? When Martin Luther burst on the scene like a thunderbolt, Europe was ready for him, Word of his 95 theses against the sale of indulgences spread throughout the empire very quickly. In a matter of two weeks, all of Germany knew about it, and in a matter of two months, all of Europe had heard of the monk who had rocked Peter's boat. Indulgences were the way to buy forgiveness for sins, past, present, and future. And he was not shy about pointing out the real object of indulgences. Who, in fact seeks the salvation of souls through indulgences, Luther asked redundantly, and not instead money for his coffers. This is evident from the way indulgences are preached, for the commissioners and preachers do nothing but extol indulgences and incite the people to contribute. All you hear is how much one must contribute. The people are always left in darkness, so that they come to think that by gaining indulgences they are at once saved. Luther basically told the people that their indulgences were worthless and that it was all about money. Imagine what the Holy Spirit could do with a church that didn't care about money and cared only for sanctifying power. They would have all the money they needed and much more. 
But when church leaders are more concerned about money than saving of souls, there will be abuse and corruption like in the days of Luther. Martin Luther was a man who was not to be trifled with. He had God on his side for one thing, but he also had powerful friends who protected him. His efforts at reform struck at the heart of Romanism. Rome had placed the Pope above all else. Luther placed the Bible above the Pope. To Luther, the Bible was the final authority, and it would deal with the corruptions of both the human heart and the church. From the beginning of my Reformation, I have asked God to send me neither dreams, nor visions, nor angels, he said, but to give me the right understanding of his word, the Holy Scriptures. For as long as I have God's word, I know that I am walking in his way, and that I shall not fall into any error or delusion." At his famous trial in Varms, he said, Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. But Luther was more afraid of himself than the Pope. I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope, self. On another occasion, he said, You should not believe your conscience and your feelings more than the word which the Lord who receives sinners preaches to you. It is interesting the way he put that. Many men can be convicted in their conscience on things that are outright wrong and which do violence to the Scriptures because they are not enlightened by the Word. So even conscience must be subject to the Bible and its enlightening message. And listen to this one. We must make a great difference between God's Word and the Word of man, said Luther. A man's Word is a little sound that flies into the air and soon vanishes. But the Word of God is greater than heaven and earth, yea, greater than death and hell, for it forms part of the power of God and endures everlastingly. Here's another one-line wonder. A simple man with scripture has more authority than the Pope or a council, said Luther. Notice that he was putting the authority of the word over the Pope. Also notice that he was giving the common man who knows scripture for himself the right to question the Pope's teachings. This horrified the Pope and threatened the church with collapse. And about the schools and universities, Luther advised them to center their instruction on the word of God. I am much afraid that the schools will prove the very gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures and engraving them in the hearts of the youth. I advise no one to place his child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which means are not unceasingly occupied with the Word of God must be corrupt. In other words, forget the monasteries and even most of the universities. Of course, students flocked to Wittenberg from all over Europe to learn at the feet of Luther, who dared to challenge the papal power. And the Bible also had quite an impact on Luther himself. The Bible is alive, he said. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays a hold of me. On another occasion, he said, the Bible is a remarkable fountain. The more one draws and drinks of it, the more it stimulates thirst. I've experienced it in my life. Have you? 
The Bible is boring to those who do not spend time with it, but it comes alive to those who discipline themselves to study it, and they want more and more and more. Once we are captured by the Word, we can say, like Luther, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Luther understood that the Bible is the voice of God. He also knew that the only way to a godly life was to study the Bible. Let the man who would hear God speak read the Holy Scriptures, he said. That's true today, too, isn't it? Luther understood that the Bible is directly connected to salvation because it reveals the cross. No man understands the Scriptures, he said, unless he be acquainted with the cross. Again, he said, can he who understands not God's word understand God's work? How can we understand the high principles of salvation unless we read and study the Bible? That's the only source of a true understanding of how God works to save us. It is the only way we can learn how to cooperate with the divine agencies engaged in our salvation. The Bible is the proper book for men, Luther said. There the truth is distinguished from error far more clearly than anywhere else, and one finds something new in it every day. For twenty-eight years since I became a doctor, I have now constantly read and preached the Bible, and yet I have not exhausted it, but find something new in it every day. And concerning the impact of Luther's work, he said, I did nothing. The Word did everything. And how very true. The Word does everything God says to do. If we do it, it is His Word that actually accomplishes it. We just cooperate with the Word. I've found in my ministry that when I demonstrate that I am willing to do what God says, He brings it to pass. I work like crazy, but it is not that I accomplish it. It is God. And when it comes to trusting God and His Word, Luther was full of advice. The sin underneath all our sins, he said, is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. Oh, how true that is. The essence of salvation is to learn not to take matters into our own hands, but to let God deal with every problem we face. On wisdom, he said, science gives man knowledge, which is power. Religion gives man wisdom, which is control. And if you want true self-control, you must experience the Bible, my friends. But perhaps it can be said that one of Luther's special concerns was to expose the Pope and his minions who knew so little of Scripture and purposely deceived the people in a false sense of security. He laid them bare for their pretended faith, and again his focus was Scripture. I know that a Christian should be humble, he said, but against the Pope I am going to be proud and say to him, You, Pope! I will not have you for my boss, for I am sure that my doctrine is divine. Oh, how great and glorious a thing it is to have before one the word of God. With that we may at all times feel joyous and secure. We need never be in want of consolation, for we see before us in all its brightness the pure and right way, Luther said. I never thought... The world had been so wicked when the gospel began, as now I see it is, he said. I rather hope that every one would have leaped for joy to have found himself freed from the filth of the Pope, from his lamentable molestations of poor troubled consciences, and that through Christ they would by faith obtain the celestial treasure that they sought after before, with such vast cost and labor, though in vain." 
and especially I thought the bishops and universities would with joy of heart have received the true doctrines, but I have been lamentably deceived. But, he said, a simple layman, armed with the scripture, is greater than the mightiest pope without it. Luther had biting words, however, for those pretended lords. As for the signs of your peculiar priesthood, he said, for we know it would be quite easy to shave, anoint, and clothe in a long robe even a pig or a block of wood. And with powerful sarcasm, Luther cut down the proud ruler with words like these, For you are an excellent person, as skillful, clever, and versed in holy scripture as a cow on a walnut tree or a sow on a harp. After the devil himself, he said in another place, There is no worse folk than the Pope and his followers. And here's another. The Pope is a mere tormentor of conscience. The assembly of his greased and religious crew in praying was altogether like the croaking of frogs, which edified nothing at all. And another, ambition begat simony. Simony begat the Pope and his brethren about the time of the Babylonish captivity. And to his obedience to the Pope, Luther said, Personally, I declare that I owe the Pope no other obedience than that to Antichrist. My dear Pope, he said, I will kiss your feet and acknowledge you as supreme bishop if you will worship my Christ and grant that through his death and resurrection, not through keeping of your traditions, we have forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Now think about this. Tony Palmer said there is no difference now between the Reformers and the Catholic Church. Back then there was a great difference, and Luther made it very clear. Is there no difference today because the Catholic Church has changed? No. It is because the descendants of the Reformers have changed and joined with Rome in their ecumenical insecurities. The fact that Protestants have changed does not change the truth of Luther's words. They're actually still true today. Popes made a science of telling half-truths as if they were the whole truth. So Luther responded, You are not only responsible for what you say, but also for what you do not say. But Luther was burdened for the souls of the people, so deceived by the priests. He has many suggestions about how to live a godly life. The whole being of any Christian is faith and love, he said. Faith brings the person to God. Love brings the person to people. And how true that is. If these two principles were lived today, how much good would they do? God does not need your good works, he said, but your neighbor does. And on how to get things done, he said, Pray like it all depends on God. Then when you're done, go work like it all depends on you. In other words, faith acts on God's promises and God fulfills them. But it all depends on you and I acting in faith on those promises. And trusting God, Luther said, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, I still possess. And on the daily experience of the gospel of Jesus, he wrote, We need to hear the gospel every day, because we forget it every day. I really like the powerful language Luther uses to address the problems of his day. It is simple. He speaks pointedly to the heart of the matter. The popes tend to ramble on with long sentences and convoluted speech with academic language that is unfamiliar to the common man. 
They do not speak to the heart. They beat the same drum over and over again. Even modern popes do this. Yet, amazingly, people accept it because the pope said so. Luther, on the other hand, was crisp, forthright, and appealed to the heart. This galvanized the people in his support. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand forever, Luther wrote. Here's another one. God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. And here is its corollary. God created the world out of nothing. And so long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. Don't you just love Luther's way of speaking? On sacrifice for the sake of Christ, Luther said, A religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. And the reformers and their followers had to suffer much indeed. On salvation and righteousness of Christ, Luther prayed, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on what was mine, yet set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I was not. Doesn't that sound like a familiar statement from Desire of Ages, page 25? Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for our sins in which he had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life which was his. With his stripes we are healed. And on discouragement he wrote with a sense of humor. When Satan tells me I'm a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably, since Christ died for sinners. When the knowledge that Jesus shed his blood for you and me, we have comfort whenever the enemy tries to discourage us. And speaking of the sacrifice of Christ, Luther points out that God does not love sinners because they are attractive. Sinners are attractive to God because he loves them. On humility, Luther was self-depreciating. The first thing I ask is that people should not make use of my name and should not call themselves Lutherans, but Christians. And what was Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor, stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? Anyone who will succeed over the enemy must become a man or woman of prayer. And Luther was just that. God wants us to pray, and he wants us to hear our prayers, not because we're worthy, but because he is merciful, he said. Prayer is climbing up into the heart of God, Luther told his audiences. He humorously encouraged them to pray and let God worry. Well, God doesn't worry, of course, and I don't think he can. He is prepared for every circumstance and knows just what to do to resolve any problem that arises. Martin Luther understood that prayer is the breath of the soul. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing, he said. But he urged that we do not pray with the mouth like the priests and popes, but that we pray from the heart, for our words reflect what is in there. Grant that I may not pray alone with my mouth, Luther said. Help me that I may pray from the depths of my heart. And knowing his weakness, he said, I have so much to do today, I need to spend another hour on my knees. 
He knew the power of prayer and said, Prayer is a strong wall and a fortress of the church. It is a goodly Christian weapon. Luther also had a few good quips about temptation. Here's one that especially struck me. Temptations, of course, cannot be avoided. But because we cannot prevent the birds from flying over our heads, there's no need that we should let them nest in our hair. And on obedience and Christian consistency, Luther was practical. It's not what I don't know that bothers me. It's what I do know and don't do. On preaching, he said, Always preach in such a way that if the people listening do not come to hate their sin, they will instead hate you. In other words, don't hold back. So many preachers and pastors today don't want to call sin by its right name. They just want to mollify the people into comfortable complacency in their cultures. They want to excuse even the worst of sins. The Catholic Church gives indulgences and the Mass and absolution to Roman Catholics so that they can do what they want, in effect. But even Protestant pastors often ignore the sins in the congregation and don't feel obliged at all to make the people uncomfortable in them. No wonder they want to end the Reformation. It's too uncomfortable to live under such fiery tongue as had Luther. Here's some good counsel about marriage. Let the wife make the husband glad to come home, and let him make her sorry to see him leave. I tell you that I know what that is like from personal experience. My wife makes me glad to come home. I hope I make her sorry to see me leave. Luther was dealing with practical godliness and human problems, and he appealed to the hearts of the people. Have you ever wondered where the famous saying came from, a penny saved is a penny earned? Well, that was modified a little from something Martin Luther said. A penny saved is better than a penny earned. The church had created rituals and formalism, which does little for the heart, but turn it against the true Christ. The only alternative for people with sensitive natures is to try and find an experience in the darkness. You know, Rome calls it spiritual formation, and it involves dark places, candles, chants, mumbo-jumbo that echoes and sounds mysterious, but this does not change the heart. It just gives an experience of some kind. If you really want to have life, turn to the Son of Righteousness with healing in His wings. Avoid all this foolishness of spiritual formation, which is really about getting people familiar and comfortable with Rome's principles. If the Jesuits were around in the days of Luther, from which spiritual formation comes, he would have denounced them as the most pestiferous and pernicious pack of wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. In contrast, Luther's advice on faith in Christ was bright hope. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it 1,000 times. This confidence in God's grace and knowledge of it makes men glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and with all creatures. And this is the work of the Holy Ghost in faith. He also said, Faith is permitting ourselves to be seized by the things we do not see. And in spite of his distaste for the book of James, he still said, True faith will no more fail to produce good works than the sun can cease to give light. In other words, if you aren't involved in good works as a Christian, you don't have faith. In those days, the Catholic Church tried to make itself look like it was full of saints, with robed altar boys walking around with hands held together as if in prayer, 
white-robed choirs and priests in beautifully embroidered vestments and little skull caps or hats making them look sanctimonious, something like they do today. It appeared that the leaders of the church were all saints and that the sinners were under their instruction and their guidance as if their rituals were the only way to heaven. Luther rejected the idea that the true church would be made only of saints. May a merciful God preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is a saint, he exclaimed. I want to be and remain in the church and little flock of the faint-hearted, the feeble and the ailing who feel and recognize the wretchedness of their sins, who sigh and cry to God incessantly for comfort and help, who believe in the forgiveness of sins. Luther was a warrior for the Lord. He knew what he was up against. He knew that the whole juggernaut of Catholicism would come after him and destroy him if they could. Peace, he said, if possible. Truth at all costs. In other words, he was not willing to give up truth for the sake of peace. Does that sound familiar? Listen to this statement from The Great Controversy. Page 45. Speaking of the early church and its inevitable separation from Rome, it says... To secure peace and unity, they were ready to make any concession consistent with fidelity to God, but they felt that even peace would be too dearly purchased at the sacrifice of principle. If unity could be secured only by the compromise of truth and righteousness, then let there be difference and even war. Martin Luther was burdened that the world-loving masses would not accept the correction of the Word of God. The world does not want to be punished, Luther said. It wants to remain in darkness. It doesn't want to be told that what it believes is false. If you also don't want to be corrected, then you might as well leave the church and spend your time at the bar and brothel. But if you want to be saved and remember that there is another life after this one, you must accept correction. Luther loved music and wrote a number of hymns. As long as we live, he said, there is never enough singing, and he gave music a very high ranking. Music is a fair and glorious gift of God. I am strongly persuaded that after theology, there is no art which can be placed on the level with music. Then he said, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. The gift of language combined with the gift of song was given to man that he should proclaim the word of God through music. Luther instructed the people in song, something that the Catholic Church had failed to do. People were told that they were to be quiet in church. A hearty hymn was not only foreign to them in the Catholic Church, which taught that musical instruments, except perhaps the organ, were sinful, or at least in church. But hymn singing was one of the great features of the Protestant church under Martin Luther's leadership, and they really enjoyed it. Luther saw singing as part of worship and produced hymns for worship, such as, A mighty fortress is our God. Come, let us sing a song, Luther urged, and drive away the devil. Modern preachers who claim that Luther taught that justification is the only thing that is needed are wrong. Listen to him. There is no justification without sanctification, no forgiveness without renewal of life, no real faith from which the fruits of new obedience do not grow. And on conversion, he wrote, people go through three conversions, the conversion of their head, their heart, and their pocketbook. Unfortunately, not all at the same time.
This grace of God is a very great, strong, mighty, and active thing, Luther said. It does not lie asleep in the soul. Grace hears, leads, drives, draws, changes, works all in man, and lets itself be distinctly felt and experienced. It is hidden, but its works are evident. In contrast to the priest who rushed from one church council to another, Luther struck at the heart of their superficial religion. The kingdom of God, he said, does not consist in talk, but in power, that is, in works and practice. God loves the doers of the word in faith and love, and not the mere hearers who, like parrots, have learned to utter certain expressions with readiness. And to go along with that, Luther suggested that at least some people need to stop talking altogether and clean up their foul language. Some people, he quipped, need a fig leaf on their mouths. But Luther's understanding of the Bible was eminently practical. It is the duty of every Christian to be Christ to his neighbor. And on God's love to us, he said, the slender capacity of man's heart cannot comprehend the unfathomable depth and burning zeal of God's love toward us. Precious thought! God is not passive. He is actively, passionately pursuing us. Luther's greatest work was to help the layman understand the Bible. He knew that if they could study its pages, the Pope and his minions would be finished. It is amazing in this enlightened age with so many Bibles around us that the Pope has as much credibility as he has. People don't study their Bibles anymore, else they would see that they are following a corrupt man, not Christ. I have undertaken to translate the Bible into German, Luther said of his greatest task. This was good for me, otherwise I might have died in the mistaken notion that I was a learned fellow. Luther's humility only enhanced the power of his work. Let us come back to the issue of the Bible. Concerning Bible study, Luther said, First I shake the whole apple tree, that the ripest might fall. Then I climb the tree and shake each limb, and then each branch, and then each twig, and then I look under each leaf. Luther revolutionized Germany. It brought an open fire where there had only been burning embers. The Walden Seas had done their work. They had been quietly shaking the walls of the established church until they were weakened like the walls of Jericho after the whole nation of Israel had tramped around them for seven days. Now God needed bold, open, public men whose trumpet witness would shatter those theological strongholds and towers and bring them tumbling down. Luther's reform in Germany sparked reform in other lands. From Scandinavia to Italy, men of God stood up at the peril of their lives to denounce the sins of Babylon so obviously portrayed by the popes and his minions. Today, my friends, we're facing the end of the Protestant era. America was founded on Protestant principles, but today the ecumenical movement has undermined those principles so that evangelicals see no danger. They have united with Rome as if Rome is their mother. They see only the desire to compromise their truth for the sake of unity. This is not the spirit of Martin Luther. Their Bibles are not from the same source as his Bible, and consequently their teachings are compromised by ecumenical thinking that is ever bringing them closer to the bosom of Rome. 
Friends, let us not lose the principles of Martin Luther. Yes, we have more light than he had. God has given us the full message. But since present truth builds itself on previous truth, the message for the last days cannot be preached without the foundational principles of Protestantism. May God help us, my friends, to live in the light of the Bible and hold to the principles that God has been pleased to give us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have come to the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's famous 95 Theses. They were meant for his time, but they are also for our own time. Please, Father, help us to hang on to our Protestant faith. Help us to live by the principles of truth that we have learned from the Reformers. And may we advance in our experience as far as present truth will take us. Thank you for your love and care for your people over the centuries. Now send your Holy Spirit to empower us to live in Christ and for Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
We hope you have been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you so much for your support. And if you've been impressed by this message and it has stirred your soul and blessed you, please consider making a gift to help some other poor souls find their way to heaven through the CDs from Keep the Faith Ministry. The song you've just heard is called Do You Know My Jesus, played by Pastor Ron Woolsey on his marimba. It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Make Me a Blessing. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry, and if you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we will gladly send them. Please mention the Make Me a Blessing CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, the UK to permit LGBT people to self-identify legally. The government of the United Kingdom is planning to reform gender identity rules to make it easier for people to choose their own gender in law. Under plans being considered by ministers, adults will be able to change their birth certificates at will without a doctor's diagnosis, while non-binary gender people will be able to record their gender as X. The gender recognition bill will have language to this effect added to it. The attempt at further normalization of transgender people is because the current law established in 2004 says that a person who wishes to transition must apply for a gender recognition certificate. This requires a doctor's diagnosis of gender dysphoria and that someone spend two years of living as a member of the opposite gender. The reforms were recommended by Parliament's Women and Equities Committee last year, which said that they were key to trans people being treated equally and fairly. Plans for self-identification were included in the Labour Manifesto. Susanna Hopwood, a member of the Stonewall Trans Advisory Group, said it's vital that this reform removes the requirements for medical evidence and an intrusive interview panel, and finally allows all trans people to have their gender legally recognized through a simple administrative process. Equalities Minister Justine Greening said, this government is committed to building an inclusive society that works for everyone, no matter what their gender or sexuality, and today we're taking the next step forward. We will build on the significant progress we have made over the last 50 years tackling some of the historic prejudices that still exist in our laws and giving LGBT people a real say on the issues affecting them. The end-time prophecy of the Bible predicting the push for LGBT equality and recognition has reached a new level of fulfillment. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, Luke 17, 28. Next, Cardinal says separation of church and state doesn't work. One of Pope Francis' closest advisors has said a strict separation of church and state will never work and has appealed for greater cooperation between the two going forward. Speaking to journalists in Limerick, Ireland, Cardinal Christoph Schoenborn of Vienna, one of Pope Francis' closest advisors, said that in Austria, church-state relations had benefited from dialogue. 
The Cardinal is one of Pope Francis' special advisory council of nine. He was in Ireland for a conference on families, the first in the build-up to the World Meeting of Families in August of 2018. After the drama of National Socialism and World War II, Austria sought to foster a free church in a free state, where the state was free and the church was free, he explained. The model of strict separation has never worked, and the model of confusing state, religion, and politics has always been very problematic, he said. We do not want confusion between politics and religion, he added. Jesus said, Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's, Matthew 22:21, effectively separating church and state. The dignitaries of church and state will unite to bribe, persuade, or compel all classes to honor the Sunday. The lack of divine authority will be supplied by oppressive enactments. Political corruption is destroying love of justice and regard for truth. And even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Liberty of conscience, which has cost so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. In the soon coming conflict, we shall see exemplified the prophet's words, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 12, 17. That's The Great Controversy, page 592. Next, the world is less stable than you think. Being leery of threat inflation can be a good thing, but the last days are going to be filled with the worst threats our planet has ever seen. Because the United States is so strong and in such a favorable geopolitical location, elites, commentators, and policymakers have to exaggerate the threats to justify bigger military spending and to convince the public to keep meddling in the far-flung corners of the earth. While some exaggeration may exist, it is prudent to consider what Jesus said would come upon the world in the last days. When Jesus said there would be strife in the last days, he wasn't kidding. Think about the destruction of Jerusalem and the French Revolution combined on a global scale. Both events are described as prophetic types of the last days. See Desire of Ages, page 631, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 166, and Education, page 228. And at the moment, genuine concern is warranted. While the world may not be on the brink of a major world war yet, Flammable material is, however, accumulating, and it's hard to have high confidence in the political leadership in several key countries, including the United States. Is the world more secure than it was a year ago? Specifically, is the risk of war increasing or decreasing? Is the danger of a serious economic crisis higher or lower? Are the institutional arrangements and norms that keep smooth and resolve conflicts of interest and enhance the prospects for international cooperation more or less robust than they were in June of 2016? The upside. Currently, the likelihood that you will die a violent death is vastly lower than it was at nearly all other moments in human history. The major powers haven't fought each other directly for over 70 years. The number of low-level conflicts remains consistent. Although the Islamic State is widening its reach, the actual risk from terrorism remains relatively low outside active conflict zones. But that's no guarantee of continued tranquility, particularly in light of prophetic forecasts. Globalists think that there are straws in the wind as well, 
like the rejection of nationalism in France and the Netherlands, and that the Islamic State's self-proclaimed caliphate is now headed for the dustbin of history, though not violent extremism. Colombia now has a peace agreement. The war in Ukraine has settled down, and there are others. Now the downside. North Korea's aggression, Islamist movements appear to be gaining strength in Indonesia and threatening its tolerant atmosphere. The Philippine government's war on drugs and terrorism have left a heavy human cost. China is still aggressive in the South China Sea, and other matters have made Asia less safe than a year ago. Add to that the Middle East, conflicts in Yemen, Syria, Iraq, and between Qatar and Saudi Arabia, which create much more potential for trouble than back in 2016. And the tension is strong. Russia recently warned the U.S. to stop further attacks on Syrian aircraft. Plus, Saudi Arabia is continuing its brutal military campaign in Yemen while simultaneously trying to force neighboring Qatar to silence Al Jazeera, sever its contacts with Iran, and basically accept Saudi predominance. It's hard to see a silver lining in these developments. And now the U.S. is on the verge of sending more troops into Afghanistan to an unwinnable war. America knows it can't win, nor can it break even. Yet neither Democrats nor Republicans will let America out of the game. Lastly, the institutional underpinnings of the present international system, the New World Order, continue to fray, which elites say will decrease stability in the world. NATO is weaker than a year ago, and doubts about the U.S. role in Asia have been rising since President Trump's withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Also, his responses to North Korea's aggression and the Philippines haven't lent to stability. Without America's help, Germany wants Europe to chart its own course, and Canada's foreign minister says international relationships that had seemed immutable for 70 years are being called into question adding that America's decisions are forcing Canada to set our own clear and sovereign course. And the ugly side. The United Kingdom is in political disarray. France has gone from one leader to the next, changing its geopolitical direction each time. Italy hasn't had effective political leadership for a very long time. Recep Erdogan in Turkey has consolidated power, but is not good at running the country. Incompetent and grossly scandalized and tainted rulers have led Brazil, Afghanistan, Poland, and throughout the Middle East. And now the United States has its own political challenges. For instance, Mr. Trump is apparently trying to gut the State Department of its diplomatic assets, which doesn't bode well in an erratic and unpredictable world. The result is looking like the worst of both worlds. The U.S. is still engaged in most of the world's trouble spots, but the ship of state is now being steered by a novice, Jared Kushner, which suggests more instability to come. Ere long we shall understand what that night means. The Spirit of God is being grieved away from the earth. The nations are angry with one another. Widespread preparations are being made for war. The night is at hand. Let the church arouse and go forth to do her appointed work. Every believer, educated or uneducated, can bear the message. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9, page 26. Next, violence in Charlottesville. Has the Civil War begun? Chaos and violence erupted in Charlottesville, Virginia, after hundreds of white nationalists, neo-Nazis, and Ku Klux Klan members staged what they described as their largest rally in decades to take America back. 
Counter-protesters clashed with them in the streets, which led to deadly violence as one 32-year-old woman was killed and 19 others injured when a car plowed deliberately into a crowd of people. Video recorded at the scene of the car crash shows a 2010 gray Dodge Challenger accelerating into crowds on a pedestrian mall, sending bodies flying, and then reversing at high speed, hitting yet more people. Witnesses said the street was filled with people opposed to the white nationalists who had come to town bearing Confederate flags and anti-Semitic epitaphs. Hours later, two state police officers died when their helicopter crashed at the outskirts of town. State police said their Bell 407 helicopter was assisting with the unrest in Charlottesville. Governor Terry McAuliffe, who had declared a state of emergency, said at an evening news conference that he had a message for all the white supremacists and the Nazis who came to Charlottesville today. Go home. You're not wanted in this great commonwealth. Maurice Jones, Charlottesville's city mayor, looked stricken as he spoke. Hate came to our town today in a way that we had feared, but had never really let ourselves imagine, he said. I am heartbroken that a life has been lost here, Charlottesville Mayor Michael Signer said in a tweet. I urge all people of goodwill, go home. In an emergency meeting, the Charlottesville City Council voted unanimously to give police the power to suspend the Constitution and enact a curfew or otherwise restrict assembly to protect public safety. The driver of the challenger, James Alex Fields Jr., 20 of Ohio, was arrested and charged with one count of second-degree murder, three counts of malicious wounding, and one count of hit-and-run attended failure to stop with injury, police said. He is held without bail. Three other men were arrested in connection with violence earlier in the day. The FBI field office in Richmond and the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Western District of Virginia said they have opened a civil rights investigation into the deadly car crash. The violence and deaths in Charlottesville strike at the heart of American law and justice, U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions said in a statement. When such actions arise from racial bigotry and hatred, they betray our core values and cannot be tolerated. Angela Taylor, a spokeswoman for the University of Virginia Medical Center, said 19 others were brought to the hospital in the early afternoon after the car barreled through the pedestrian mall. Five were in critical condition. Another 14 people were hurt in street brawls, city officials said. Earlier, police evacuated a downtown park as rally-goers and counter-protesters traded blows and hurled bottles and chemical irritants at one another, putting an end to the noon rally before it officially began. Despite the decision to quash the rally, clashes continued on side streets and throughout downtown, including the pedestrian mall at Water and 4th Streets, where the challenger slammed into counter-protesters and two other cars in the early afternoon, sending bystanders running and screaming. Elected leaders in Virginia and elsewhere urged peace, blasting the white supremacist views on display in Charlottesville as ugly. Former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke, a Trump supporter who was in Charlottesville that day, quickly replied, I would recommend you take a good look in the mirror and remember it was white Americans who put you in the presidency, not radical leftists, he wrote. Asked by a reporter in New Jersey whether he wanted the support of white nationalists, dozens of whom wore red Make America Great Again hats during the Charlottesville riots, Trump did not respond. Even as crowds began to thin, 
In Charlottesville, the town remained unsettled and on edge. Onlookers were deeply shaken at the pedestrian mall where ambulances had tried to treat those injured by the car. Chan Williams, 22, was among the counter-protesters in the street chanting, Black Lives Matter and Whose Streets? Our Streets. The marchers blocked traffic, but Williams said drivers weren't annoyed. When she heard the car engine rev up and saw the people in front of her dodging a moving car, she didn't know what to think. I saw the car hit bodies, legs in the air, she said. You try to grab the people closest to you and take shelter. Williams and friend George Halliday ducked into a shop with an open door and called their mothers. An hour later, the two were still visibly upset. I saw shoes on the road, Halliday, 20, said. It all happened in two seconds. The Unite the Rights rally was meant to protest the planned removal of a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. The city of Charlottesville voted to remove the statue earlier this year, but it remains in Emancipation Park, formerly known as Lee Park, pending a judge's ruling expected later this month. They were met by counter-protesters at the base of the statue of Thomas Jefferson, who founded the university. One counter-protester apparently deployed a chemical spray, which sent about a dozen rally-goers seeking medical assistance. On the day of the rally, people in combat gear, some wearing bicycle and motorcycle helmets and carrying clubs, sticks, and makeshift shields, fought one another on downtown streets with little apparent police interference. Both sides sprayed chemical irritants and hurled plastic bottles through the air. A large contingent of Charlottesville's police officers and Virginia State Police troopers in riot gear were stationed on side streets and at nearby barricades, but did nothing to break up the melee until about 11.40 a.m. Using megaphones, police then declared an unlawful assembly and gave a five-minute warning to leave Emancipation Park. By early afternoon, hundreds of rally-goers had made their way to a larger park two miles to the north. Duke, speaking to the crowd, said that European Americans are being ethnically cleansed within our own nation and called the events the first step toward taking America back. White nationalists leader Richard Spencer also addressed the group, urging people to disperse, but he promised they would return for a future demonstration, blaming the violence on counter-protesters. In an interview, Spencer said he was beyond outraged that police had declared the planned rally an unlawful assembly. I never before thought that I would have my country cracking down on me and on free speech, he said. We were lawfully and peacefully assembled. We came in peace and the state cracked down. He said that counter-protesters attacked rally-goers, but also acknowledged that maybe someone threw a first punch on our side. Maybe that happened. I obviously didn't see anything. By 11 a.m., several fully armed militias and hundreds of right-wing rally-goers had poured into the small downtown park that was to be the site of the rally. Counter-protesters held Black Lives Matter signs and placards expressing support equality and love as they faced rally-goers who waved Confederate flags and posters that said the Goyim no, referring to non-Jewish people and the Jewish media is going down. No Trump, no KKK, no fascist USA, the counter-protesters chanted. Michael von Koch, a Pennsylvania resident who called himself a Nazi, said the rally made him proud to be white. He said that he has long held white supremacist views and that Trump's election has emboldened him and the members of his own Nazi group. We are assembled to defend our history, our heritage, and to protect our race to the last man, von Koch said, wearing a protective helmet and sporting a wooden shield 
and a broken pool cue, we came here to stand up for the white race. Naundi Cook, 23, who is black, said that she came to the counter-protest to support my people, but that she's never seen something like this before. When violence broke out, she started shaking and got goosebumps. I've seen people walking around with tear gas all over their face, all over their clothes, people getting maced, fighting, she said. I didn't want to be next. Cook said she couldn't sit back and watch while white nationalists descend on her town. She has a three-year-old daughter to stand up for, she said. Right now, I am not sad, she said once the protest dispersed. I'm a little more empowered. All these people and support, I feel, like we're on top right now because of all the support that we have. America is on the brink of civil war with political and racial elements. And the earth was filled with violence. Genesis 6, verse 11. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. Luke 17, 26. Next, India to become cashless by 2020. Amid the big push for digital transactions, post-demonetization, NITI AOG CEO Amitabh Kant said cards, ATMs, and point-of-sale or POS machines would become redundant in the country by 2020. India is in the midst of a huge disruption in the world of both financial technology and in terms of social innovation. There is huge innovation and this disruption it will enable India to leapfrog, he said, and by 2020, my view is that in the next two and a half years, India will make all its debit cards, credit cards, all ATM machines, all POS machines totally irrelevant. Kant, who was speaking at a session of Pravasi Bharatiya Divas 2017, a three-day mega event, said, payment cards will all become redundant in India, and India will make this jump because every Indian will be doing his transaction just by using his thumb in 30 seconds. Speaking at a session on startups and innovations which have the social impact in India, at the Youth Pravasi Bharatiya Divas in Bengaluru, he said, what we are pushing now is digital payment in a very big way and it is a huge disruption with several innovative methods. India has created a back end in terms of biometric which will enable India, he said, highlighting recently launched BHIM app and the Adhar enabled payment system initiatives, pointing out that India is the only country with a billion mobile and mobile biometric. Kant also noted that India is largely a cash-driven economy. Pointing out that only 2 to 2.5% of Indians pay taxes, Kant said it is impossible for India to become a $10 trillion economy like this. $2 trillion is a formal economy, and another $1 trillion is an informal black economy. It is not possible for India to grow, so you need to convert from the non-formal economy to the formal economy. That's what the effort is. Kant said, in social innovation and financial technology, it was the young Indians who were disrupting the world. He said they will enable India's leapfrog to take it to a $10 trillion economy. So the young people of India must have the hunger, ambition, and passion for driving India to innovation, to startups, and disrupting India in a manner that it has never seen before, he said. Biometric digital payment systems are the future of transactions, and were predicted in scripture when John the Revelator explained that no buy, no sell laws should be imposed on all people who refuse to accept the mark of the beast, 
by obeying the coming global and national worship laws designed to force humanity to worship Satan and his earthly agents. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Revelation 13, 17. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.